0: What is up fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with, in every team podcast, I graded every NBA team's top under 25 player so far. We'll get to that criteria in just a second. Very quickly, if this is your first time listening to us, um, watching us on YouTube, please subscribe to us. Throw us that permanent sub. Hit subscribe on YouTube, like, comment on the videos to help the algorithm love us back. If you're on pod, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Stitcher, Please subscribe, download every episode, and do both. Be it subscribe to us on YouTube and also subscribe to us on a podcast player. Tell people about us if you've done both those things. Shout us out on Twitter, retweet our promos. It could help a lot if there's more engagement on the Hardwood Knox account. Follow our socials. We're like 14 followers away from 5k um, at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, and then we're also on IG and TikTok as well. Join our Discord where you'll get priority mailbag. Questions, you will also be able to interact with me. You'll be able to interact with our great growing community. The link to that is in the YouTube and the podcast description as well. Um, look, let's dive into this. And so, very, very, I'll try to be quick about this. I want to have criteria, and these grading rubrics are weird. Um, one, these are before games being played on Sunday. So, Darius Garland, for instance, dropping a trillion points is in here. I'll adjust, I guess, as I go along, if I need to. I think he's really the only big adjustment I would make. Um, but just so you know that if you're listening to this on a Monday, a Tuesday, or whatever, this was going into before games on Sunday, November 13th. Um, I also recognize that grades for these, they can be awkward, and by awkward, I mean incendiary. Uh, Grading rubrics are inexact, they're ambiguous. People are, what the hell, my favorite player X is too low. What the hell, why did my not favorite player Y get higher when they're averaging more points per game? Um, I graded players according to this, relative to their expectations. If you're supposed to be a star, then I have higher expectations for you than if you're an end of bench player. And so these are um, the grading breakdowns. I'll I'll actually throw them up on the screen so that people who are watching can see them. So an A is killing it relative to expectations, no notes. B, exceeding expectations. C, and this is where I think a lot of people get bent out of shape. Um, It's at or around expectations. It's not a bad grade. It's a a Passing grade, and people for some reason get offended by that when they see a C. D is comfortably missing expectations, and then F, missing expectations by an unsettling amount. And this is the perfect time to panic. Spoiler alert if you put out grades in between B plus, A plus, these are relatives of rubrics as well. I only gave out two A pluses though, and that actually might be high, but there are two players under 25, of course. By the way, emphasis on under 25. I don't care. If they just turned 25, I don't care if there's technically their age 25 season. Like De'Aaron Fox, for example, he's still 24 as I wrote and recorded this. Um, he was here. I think with that, um, we are free to get started here. A note for people who are watching on camera, if it looks like I'm all sorts of weird, I might try to timestamp this as I go along to make it easier for everybody. So if you want chapters, please deal with it. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks with Trey Young. I, I gave him a C minus. feel pretty, pretty good about that. Alarm bells start sounding when you dig into Trey's numbers. Putting up 27.9 points and 9.2 assists is patently ridiculous, and he has managed to up his volume at the charity stripe where he's shooting 92.5%. But his overarching efficiency is down at every level. He's shooting 43% at the rim, 40% from mid-range, 30% from three. Marks that pale in comparison to last year's 59-47-39 split. Young has also exchanged long-range attempts for more looks between 4 and 14 feet. That's not sinister when he's converting over 46% of his floaters, but it is worth noting. Bumps and hiccups are the expectation right now. He and DeJounte Murray have been a stellar fit, but they're not a natural one. Young is spending more time away from the ball. Not a ton, but it's a noticeable change. More of his buckets are coming off assists compared to last season, and his total time of possession has dropped by over 11% percent from 8.7 minutes to 7.7 minutes despite virtually no change in his court time so that is a big difference lineups featuring young and murray uh, excuse me lineups featuring young without murray are also getting annihilated at the moment dinging him for that feels off the lift during those minutes is heavy bogdan McDonovich has yet to play this season and head coach nate mcmillan has responded by tethering many of Young's solo stints to both holiday brothers defaulting to a c- could seem cruel Young's output remains absurd, and he's trying different things within more confined spaces. But his efficiency dip, while not unexpected or entirely his own, is at least a hair more significant than you'd like. Moving on to the Boston Celtics, Jason Tatum only 19. He's he's 24. Uh, look, some idiot left Jason Tatum off their first MVP ladder of the season. It was me. Rest assured. That'll be remedied next time around. Tatum is averaging 31.2 points and 4.2 assists and downing 60.2% of his twos and 37.9% of his triples. He's never done a better job of getting to the charity stripe and is shooting damn near 80% at the rim. Boston has done a nice job of streamlining some of his three-point attempts compared to last season. And Tatum actually isn't drilling off the dribble jumpers at a pristine clip. Generally speaking, though, he remains the offense's lifeline and he still manages to play really good to monster defense. It feels like the Celtics have him checking harder assignments. He remains disruptive away from the ball, and he's turning blocks from behind into an art form. By the way, Tatum is doing all this while battling a left wrist injury. That is categorically bonkers, and it adds to the real-time mystique of a tenured superstar taking up the mantle of a top-flight MVP candidate and potentially entrenching himself as the league's most complete player. Um, look, name a more complete player in the league than Jason Tatum right now. I think people might mention a Paul George or Devin Booker, maybe even a Kevin Durant. Um, Jason Tatum's in that conversation. He got an A. Brooklyn next, Nick Claxton. He got an A. Somewhat, look, somewhat lost within the smoldering pile of ash and rubble that has become Brooklyn's future is one hell of this season from Nick Claxton. Drama, drama, and more drama has no doubt obscured how well he's playing. The team's lack of success when he populates the front court with Ben Simmons doesn't help matters. But little about Brooklyn's issues are within Claxton's control. His partnership with Simmons comes closest, and yet it was always counterintuitive. Um, Claxton can't be dinged for not spacing the floor. That's never been his job. Switching on to players of all strengths and archetypes is Claxton's job. And he's pretty fucking good at his job. He remains matchup-proof on the perimeter— and those burlier bigs can toss him around on the glass. He's posting a career-best defensive and offensive rebounding rate while holding his own on contests at the rim. Claxton's offensive usage isn't complicated. That's part of the point here. He gorges on cutting dunks and layups and tip-ins while busting out the occasional hook shot or on-ball drive. He's currently shooting 77.8%. As the role man, and he'd probably be leading the world in points per possession as the diver if he could hit a friggin free throw or resist the urge to set fewer painfully obvious moving screens that officials have no choice but to call. Easy A minus for me here. He's been great, and anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I am I'm a big Nick Claxton fan. Next up. Look, it's PJ Washington. I know LaMelo made his debut, but we have one game of LaMelo. I was writing this, I was doing this, going through the exercise while um, LaMelo was still out with the sprained ankle. So it's PJ Washington. I gave him a B. Um, and a twist is I sure as hell didn't see coming. 24 year old Dennis Smith Jr. came really close to making an appearance here from his finishing and standstill three point shooting to his passing and his defensive energy. He's fifth in the league in deflections, by the way. Almost everything about DSJ is a pleasant and monumental surprise. 12 games isn't enough for him to curry favor over more established options, though. DSJ was thinking about trying out for the NFL just a couple months ago. His comeback story, which is more like an official emergence, needs time to marinate. That brings us to P.J. Washington. His season is tough to wrap your head around. He seemingly shuttles between nightly notable and what-the-fuck-did-I-just-watch offensive performances. Injuries have left him to create more, and he's flashed shiftiness when Charlotte spreads the floor. At the same time, he's shooting under 39% on drives. The Hornets, though, have juiced up his touches around the elbow, where he's shooting 65%, 13 of 20 from the floor, and diming up, cutting, sometimes slithering bigs. But the increased on the move looks he's taking from 4 to 14 feet are uncomfortable, and he's hitting just 31% of his spot-up threes. It makes sense to me to just appreciate the versatility in the end on both sides of the floor. He's done everything from sprinkling step-backs to initiate some pick-and-rolls. His is an outsized roll. He doesn't seem fit for long term, but he also doesn't look out of his depth. And that's ultimately why I gave him a B. I would think that this exceeds expectations relative to the load that he's been carrying. I think we might have another surprise coming up too. the Chicago Bulls. Ayo Desunmu, age 22. He got a B plus. Where is Patrick Williams? I can okay, hear the questions now. It's a great question, especially because it seems like he's Patrick Williams is starting to put more and more together. But how do I phrase this? Ayo Desunmu is better. And he's been better and more available since entering the league last year. Sub-25 torch passings don't have to be permanent, but for now, the Chicago Bulls' sub-25 torch, it's been passed. Jasunmu's offensive game is incredibly tidy. He offers rim pressure and threes and has exchanged his long middies from last year for even more rim pressure and threes. He is shooting 58.3% on drives and clearing 38% from long distance. Though not your typical floor general, Dasumu does elevate the offense as a quick decision playmaker. Whether he's working from a set position or off live dribbles, the ball just doesn't stick with him. Through it all, defense remains his calling card. He's 6'4", yet almost positionless, and capable of rescuing entire possessions by juggling multiple assignments. If he ever diversifies his offensive portfolio with more self-creation, less aversion to contact, and or just fewer turnovers out of the pick and roll, Patrick Williams is going to have a hard time catching up to Dasumu in the pecking order. B-plus for him. Darius Garland, again, before his 50-burger his on Sunday. I gave him a C-minus. I could bump him up to a C, C-plus. Um, we're at expectations with Dario Darius Garland. I know some Cavs fans, I think, were mad about this grade. Um, there are also some Cavs fans that were probably mad at Darius Garland before he went kaboom on Sunday. Uh, the other issue here is, look, go with Evan Mobley if you're so inclined, but Darius Garland entered the season as the Cleveland Cavaliers' best player. Like That was, when you looked at this team... He was the guy most likely to make an All-NBA squad. Donovan Mitchell's changed that calculus, but he's over 25. Ditto for the eyelid laceration that uh, Garland suffered, by the way, which sounds really painful. I know he only missed a few games, but still. It cost him a handful of appearances, and it's probably contributed to his mostly shaky efficiency. Um, But Darius Garland, when you look at the offense, he's still been mission critical to the Cavs' mode of offensive operations. Defenses still have trouble keeping up with him in the lane, and he's rather comfortably Cleveland's best passer still. The scoring will come. It did come on Sunday. He's not going to shoot 30% at the rim forever, even if he keeps going for impossibly angled layups. His turnover should dip too. Um, if C, C+, if you see that as overly generous, maybe harsh, that probably means it's ideal since there was pushback from both angles. We absolutely should expect more from Garland. Again, he's already given it to us, but he's simultaneously playing through the integration of another all-star and a fucked up eye. This warrants grading against a curve. His meld of speed and slipperiness and slipperiness, excuse me, And feel is all intact, whether he's scoring or not. That's more important than anything to me under the circumstances for the 22 year old. So again, after that performance, I wouldn't give him a C minus. I'd nudge him up to like a C plus, maybe even a B minus just because that's like, oh, Darius Garland is here and he's not going anywhere type shit. Next up, Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks. I gave him an A minus. That should come as no surprise. He could probably get an unqualified A. Yes, he has looked absolutely gassed by the end of certain games. Anecdotally, it seems like he's most lethargic and less than spectacular against inferior opponents. That isn't on him, for the most part. The Dallas Mavericks have surrounded Doncic with one player who can effectively dribble. That number balloons to one and a half, depending on how you feel about Christian Wood. Their Their dependence on Doncic is alarming, and it's also historic. Only two other players in NBA history have ever posted a higher usage rate. 2016-17, Russell Westbrook, and 2018-19, James Harden. Ridiculous still, more than 90.5% of Doncic's made baskets have gone unassisted. Among every player, to average at least 15 minutes and appear in five or more games, this mark would be the largest share of unassisted field goals made in the NBA's tracking database, which goes all the way back to 96-97. I'm exhausted from just thinking about the immensity of Doncic's role. Many will argue he's not wired to play any other way. That's BS. The Mavs haven't given him the chance to play a different way. And failing to keep or replace Jalen Brunson has only thrown them further down the one-man show vortex. Doncic is killing it anyway, though, because he's a megastar. His sub 30% clip from beyond the arc puts the minus in a minus, but he's shooting over 60% on twos, including 52% from mid range while averaging an NBA best 33 plus points per game, living at the foul line, dominating in the post and injecting his usual remarkable passing into the offense. He's just, he's been great. If he's your MVP, I get it. I, I probably still lean Giannis here. You know, really depends on what we're doing. That's a different conversation we need to have, but he's been great. The Denver Nuggets, Michael Porter jr. Here, No one really close to competing with him on the roster. I think some might prefer Bones Island. It's just, it's too early for that. I gave the 24, excuse me, I gave MPJ a B. Uh, His 48.6% clip from deep comes on over seven attempts per game. Steph Curry is currently the only player to finish an entire season matching that three-point volume while shooting better than 45% from beyond the arc. In like a semi-related note though, there's four other players this year who are on pace to join uh, Steph. And one of them is MPJ. These are not your run-of-the-mill triples, though. Most of them are assisted, but Porter can switch trays off movement and escape triples. There is no recourse for his anomalous combination of size, form, and touch. And he bends defenses further with some away from the ball misdirection in inside the arc. Part of me wanted to roll with a B-minus. We knew Porter could shoot the lights out. The rest of his offensive game hasn't really changed. He's seen his efficiency on short mid-rangers dip, and the Denver Nuggets don't entrust him with a ton of creation. Still... This is this somewhat specialized role is a function of the roster, and the team is neither built nor needs to plumb the depth of his on-ball decision-making. MPJ deserves credit for operating more within the flow of the offense, for averaging nearly 30 minutes per game after returning from a back injury that cost him most of last year, for historically incandescent shooting even by his standards, and for potentially giving Denver a way to survive stints without both Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray if Michael Malone is willing to play him with Bowens Highland. So it'll be if you bumped it up to a B plus, i would kind of understand it. I feel like he's been a little bit friskier defensively. Um, and he's always been when healthy, like can be a guy, maybe not, you know, in but inconsistently, he can be a guy who's who's a defensive playmaker. So if you need to bump it up, look, I get it. Uh, Detroit Pistons, Cade Cunningham. I feel like this is going to be unnecessarily controversial. I am a B minus. He's about where I'd expect, maybe a little bit worse, maybe a little bit better. Sentiment on Cade appears to have ever so slightly shifted among many outside the Detroit Pistons orbit. I don't get it. Cunningham's overall efficiency remains less than ideal. He's below 28% from three and his conversion rate from deep only climbs to 33.3% on spot ups. Increased dependence on the mid-range jumper is unnerving, even if he's banging them in at a slightly higher clip. His finishing near the basket is, is wonky, repressed by what I feel like his premature takeoff points and a lack of awareness or regard for crowded spaces. Concerns are exacerbated by his drawing a low percentage of shooting fouls and not grinding up defenses off the dribble with the vulture and mania of Luka Doncic. Cunningham's defensive lapses away from the ball seem like they're mounting in number two. Paint me every motherfucking shade of unbothered in existence. Detroit's defense at large is a mess of work in progress coverages. Um, there was a great article, by the way, published about this at the athletic by James L Edwards, the third. So if you have the athletic, I would recommend go um, like talking about how much Detroit is switching and some of the stuff that's been happening away from the ball. That's awkward. So definitely go check that out. Um, anyway, most of the lineups in which Cade plays also contain three below average three point shooters and the addition of Jaden Ivey has not in any way streamlined his usage. Over 84% of Cade's made two-pointers have gone unassisted, a noticeable uptick from last season's 76.5% share. Newsflash, Cade's not floundering amid still complex usage. Cunningham is draining 49-plus percent of his pull-up twos and remains a caps lock playmaker. Detroit's offensive efficiency improves by 16.4 points per 100 possessions with a six-point bump in effective field goal percentage for a reason. Kate is a viable lifeline, overstretched, perhaps, but a lifeline all the same. I'm not worried. This dude is going to be in the mix to be a top 10 player one day. I'm just, I'm there with him. And I I don't understand the sentiment sort of otherwise, or at least not, people aren't writing him off, but it's weird. We go to the Golden State Warriors and Jordan Poole. We have our first, what could be considered a very bad grade. I gave Jordan Poole a big fat D. Uh, Jordan Poole is considered and received an extension that suggests he's the golden state warrior star in waiting. He's not playing like it. The offensive armory remains deep. He's an underrated table setter and his on ball shiftiness in the lane is tough to cover. He wields a variety of body movements and shot levels to keep defenses on tilt. His 52.3% clip on twos comes in spite of shoddy finishing around the rim. That efficiency inside the arc is instead buoyed by a 50% knockdown rate on mid range jumpers outside of 14 feet. Eventually though, we need to have a conversation about how the Warriors' star in waiting still doesn't carry the offense to net neutrality when Steph is off the floor. Golden State's bench has vacillated between disappointing and putrid, not all of which is on pool. He can lug the Steph curry units featuring some combination of Moses Moody, Ty Jerome, James Wiseman, Anthony Lamb, and Jonathan Kaminga only so far. By the way, James Wiseman not really been playing, Anthony Lamb been balling out. I get it, but the point, the point stands. To this stage, however, Poole hasn't been part of the bench's solution. His defensive resistance is non-existent and has the bigs behind him, go watch the Warriors, overcompensating. And he's putting down a lackluster percentage of both pull-up threes, 23%, and spot-up triples, sub-35%. Spending so much time beside relative inexperience without a healthy Dante DiVincenzo explains part of Poole's struggles. It is far from vindication. He will be better than this because he is better than this. For now, he's missing the mark demonstrably. It's a D. People, they were uh, side points per game if you need to. The efficiency's off. The defense has been bad. Still a really good player, but we should have expected more from him. We should be disappointed. The Houston Rockets, Jalen Green, I gave him a game of B minus. This was one of the toughest ones that I did. Uh, basketball fans prone to brewing their own beer in the laundry room of, inside their basement will insist Alper and Shangoon belongs here. He's really good a seesaw all playmaker who has ratcheted up his scoring. He does not belong here, though. Jalen Green is supposed to be that dude for the Rockets, the central nervous system of their entire rebuild, noticeably more so than Shangun or Jabari Smith Jr. even. That at once locks Green into this spot while pushing up the bar to which he's held. Anyone expecting a progression into transcendent territory is being treated to a letdown. Green does continue to score like, whoa, he's at over 20 points per game and he's splashing in over 36% of his threes, including nearly a 36% clip on his off the dribble threes. His overall efficiency is down, but an infinite number of first step blowbys make you almost not care. If there was a player who looks like he's most likely to swish unfathomably difficult shots award, Green would be among the finalists. There's nevertheless a nagging sense of plateauism here, or at least a failure to measurably branch out. His playmaking instincts have felt a little more natural over the past few games, but he, he has almost as many turnovers as assists right now. Houston bears full responsibility for the offense's setup. Green shouldn't be looked at as, let, let's just call it a 1B playmaker. The roster also demands it. He can hit mind-melting shots in droves at every level on clips reasonable enough to endorse his taking them. The rest of his game remains very much under construction and in serious need at times of some deceleration. Which... Barely a dozen games into the second year of his career is perfectly fine in my book. So B minus if you want to go B because he's been slightly better. I just, I feel like we're watching basically the same player we saw close last season, uh, which is again, he's still, I still think he's going to end up being really good. Indiana Tyrese Halliburton. I gave him an A. I don't really even know like what, would you give him why wouldn't you give him an a let me hear that case the paces are no longer waiting to see whether tyrese Halliburton can become the pillar around whom they construct their entire team in future they know for a fact he's that type of building block because he keeps showing them Halliburton is averaging 21.6 points and 9.9 assists on almost 65 true shooting his aggression has heightened and it covers every level he has reached peak unpredictability in the eyes of opposing defenses someone who attacks switches throws up on a dime floaters and pushes rains down, step back, and escape dribble jumpers, deploys abrupt changes in direction and footwork, and continues to disarm with those last-second dimes after leaving the ground that Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrow so astutely wrote about. Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, and Donovan Mitchell are the only players who have so far buried more unassisted three-pointers. Imagine thinking Halliburton would be this reliable of a self-starter one year ago, and he marries it with the passing necessary to weaponize an entire offense both on the run and in the half-court. Indiana has rediscovered its timeline after last year's midseason pivot. Its timeline is Tyrese Albert. That was an easy one. You know it was not an easy one? The Clippers. Brandon Boston Jr. is the player I picked. I gave him a C. But, look, shout out to the Clippers for making this tough. Brandon Boston Jr., Moses Brown, and Jason Preston, and Musa Debate were the only names that qualified for this list. Um, and it was a matter of you know at the beginning of the season had you asked me i would have said that jason preston would have belonged on this list i know he missed all of last last season but when you look at the point guard setup okay you have you have reggie jackson you have john wall but john wall's not going to play on both ends of back to back it's like maybe maybe there was a pathway for him to to play more there hasn't been maybe he thought the same way about Musa Diabate just because he's a big on a roster that doesn't really have bigs uh it hasn't worked out that way the ditto for Moses Brown I just don't think he's played enough there were some calls for him to get actual run uh after he dropped 13 points in there I think it was a victory over the Houston Rockets but let's not get carried away Evita Zubac is somewhere spitting fire as I talk about this And Brown, Moses Brown, plays at the cadence of someone wandering around the supermarket without a shopping list, even when he's sprinting. So I gave this spot to Boston, and not entirely because while I was doing this, he torched the South Bay Lakers in the G League for 37 points on 14 of 20 shooting. Boston has hardly exceeded expectations, but given the depth of the Clippers' big league roster, he's not missing them either. His comfort level running off screens and dribbling into threes intrigues me. And especially as someone who is 6'6", and might be able to initiate some offense for others, or at the very least... Won't shy from navigating traffic. I just—if you have strong opinions on the under twenty-five core of the Clippers, you're you're my favorite kind of sicko. Uh, Los Angeles Lakers. I went with Lonnie Walker the fourth. I don't really think this should be up for debate. There is an alternate reality in which I was brave enough to go with Austin Reeves, though. He is the consummate compliment at both ends of the floor. But to choose him is to deny the value of high-volume scoring and rim pressure. Lonnie Walker the fourth is bringing both to L.A. Roughly 40% of his looks are coming at the hoop this season. That would be a career high. And he has done a better job fitting inside the larger context of the Lakers than someone who is so maddeningly inconsistent from downtown probably should. Walker has set some screens, quickened his decision-making, busted his butt in transition, and even just a few nice passes going downhill. Efficiency from the perimeter remains his Achilles heel. My jump shot is too beautiful to not be making any threes, he told Spectrum Sportsnet's Mike Trudell after a win over the Pelicans. He's not lying his 15.8 points per game come on a 46% clip from mid range. And he's 10 of 20 from deep over his last handful of his appearances for the season though. He remains under 30% on threes with an effective field goal percentage below 30, 30 below 45 on all jumpers. Excuse me. I think a B here is perfectly fine. He's been a better fit than I would have expected looking at the context of the Lakers roster. And maybe this grade would climb if we circle back to it, but yeah, I think he was a, I still want to pick him up when you look at the makeup of the roster, though maybe because he's playing so well, but I thought he was going to be an oddball fit after initially liking the signing, by the way, but then the rest of the off season plays out. I thought he was going to be an oddball fit. Uh, now it's just sort of like he, he's a better fit than I expected. Rhonda John Morant, who let's face it one. He was the only choice here. He could have Desmond Bain's been killing it, but it's John Morant. He gets an easy a Josh start to 22, 23 can be summed up in two words, MVP candidate. I just counted four in my hands by making MVP three words. His numbers evoke double takes. He's averaging 28.8 points, 6.9 assists, while hitting 45.9% of his threes. 45.9% of his threes. Seriously, that's a real thing. Going under him or assuming he won't actively look for his three balls, no longer viable recourse for defenses. Morant is finding the net on 53.3% of his spot-up trays, but almost half of his deep balls have gone unassisted. He's canned over 41% of his off-the-dribble threes. Spectacle continues to ensue every time he attacks, which means it ensues quite often. Only Shea Gilgis-Alexander averages more drives per game. Morant's capacity to leverage his mid-flight decision-making, sudden push shot, and now a three-pointer has rendered him unsolvable. While he can fall too in love with bailing out of drives, it's a tendency the Memphis Grizzlies gladly indulge because he's capable of hitting fall-away and tough-angled looks and because the defensive attention he draws, regardless of the possession's outcome, is invaluable to their offensive existence. This is—I don't know where he ends up on the top ten MVP ladder right now. There's just so many deserving candidates with Jason Tatum, Giannis, uh, Luka Doncic for one. If uh, Shea Gilch Alexander probably belongs on there himself, but he—he's in there and he's been spectacular this season. And I underestimated the Grizzlies again, as I just have to say time and time again. B plus for Tyler Hero of the Miami Heat. Uh, Tyler, he's flown somewhat under the radar after signing a big extension, most likely because the Miami Heat as a whole are underachieving. Tyler Hero, however, is not. Entering the starting lineup has not diminished his impact as a scorer. If anything, the Heat's dependence on him is mushroomed. More of his made baskets are going unassisted than last season, which is counterintuitive given some of the lineup context. Perhaps there is a world in which Hero does more accessory work. It can't be this one. The Heat's offense needs his from scratch zip to survive. And this reliance doesn't include a trade-off. Hero has polished off some of his scoring arsenal. He's cut some mid range jumpers in favor of threes, and most critically, more looks at the rim, where he's finding nylon on a career high 68% of his attempts. Deferring is clearly less of a focus for Hero when you watch him. That's fine. He made strides as a passer the past couple seasons, but this isn't this isn't a reversion. His scoring efficiency, along with Miami's offensive structure, necessitates the shift. Minutes without Jimmy Butler are touch and go, but that's the case for everyone. Hero is pumping in 48.6% of his pull-up triples, a top three mark among 32 players who have launched as many such shots. And among the 42 names finishing at least five pick and roll touches as the ball handler per game, only Stephen Curry is averaging more points per possession. Standout year from Tyler Hero, Tyrese Hero. And I'm just not sure why we're not talking about it more. The Milwaukee Bucks... Marjan Bochamp, Jordan Wara, you have my apologies. Uh, B-plus for, for the kid, he has looked, look, injuries up and down the Bucks roster have opened the door for Bochamp to actually play. He's rising to the occasion. Uh, o- over these past few games, two of which I believe were spot starts, he's, he's drilling over 36% of his threes on 5.5 attempts while busting his hump in transition, figuring out where to stand depending on who has the ball, and just competing on defense. Milwaukee might be hard pressed to find minutes for its newbie at full strength. There should, in theory, come a time when Giannis, Pat Connaughton, Joe Ingles, Wesley Matthews, and Chris Middleton are all available at once. But if Bochamp keeps running the floor like this and then hitting corner threes, the Bucs may have no choice other than to make permanent room for him in the rotation. That that was just an easy one for me. You know, it wasn't an easy one. Minnesota Timberwolves with Anthony Edwards. There's the, the no-brainer choice to for their top player under 25. A game of C-minus, and I thought about going lower. Uh, look, Anthony Edwards set a lofty bar for himself last season. He implemented enough comprehensive improvement at both ends of the floor to have spectators wondering how long it'd be before he made his first All-NBA team. The Minnesota Timberwolves were so sold on the leap, they mortgaged their future for one of the most fascinating win right to hell now experiments in recent memory with the acquisition of Rudy Gobert. Year three has not featured as many tangible steps forward for Edwards. His scoring and assist averages are basically unchanged, and he's seen his three-point clip drop back below 33%. Plenty is made about his dearth of dunks, including by Edwards himself, but more of his buckets are actually coming at the rim despite logging so many reps in dual big lineups. His efficiency from the perimeter has actually suffered more. His effective field goal percentage on jumpers is 45.7. That's over four points lower than last year when it was 49.9. Minnesota's entire team feels like it's searching on offense. Edwards is no different. Had a, you know, hit a big shot on Sunday. There are possessions, though, in which he looks entirely displaced from the action. And his defense hasn't impressed nearly as often as the Timberwolves toggle between different variations of coverage, depending on who occupies the front court. Awkwardness can be a part of growth. Going through the motions now could pay massive dividends later. Either way, Ant's start to the season has served up a reality check. Superstardom remains his destination. He's not there yet. New Orleans. This this was easy, too. We have Zion. The grade was not so easy. I gave him a C, and I thought about going higher, and you could go higher. His return has either been as anticipated or marginally mellowing. Moments of video game dominance aren't hard to find. His downhill assaults remain among the most terrifying sights in NBA history. He's also averaging 26 points, 4 assists over both per 36 minutes, production that's right in line with what he did during the 2020-2021 campaign something still feels off considerably fewer of his looks are coming at the rim. Depending on the night, this feels like a symptom of less overall explosion, distantly and bizarrely angled layup attempts, additional usage in the post or some combination of all three. I'm inclined to attribute a swath of any offensive oddities to new Orleans Pelicans head coach, Willie green Zion has yet to even finish 10 possessions as the pick and roll ball handler this year. And his drives for 36 minutes are down from 2020, 2021, New Orleans does have more mouths to feed with both Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum in the fold, but there's also value in giving Zion the ball up top and simply telling him to go, particularly when you're trying to bust up zones, similar topsy turviness applies to the defensive end. As Michael Pina outlined for the ringer, Zion both impresses and infuriates both on and away from the ball. This two-way tug of war will become a larger scale issue. If it sustains in the meantime, I think Zion's availability and overall offense remain early season wins for a player who missed all of last year with a right foot injury and is already dealing with some hip stuff. Now I would expect to, if we jumped ahead the month, this grade would go up. So meeting expectations, I think is fair. You know, who else is meeting expectations. I gave RJ Barrett of the Knicks uh, a C, which, you know, he's been up and down first five games. He sucked next seven. He's great. Then he's weird. Uh, Barely. He gets pulled out of the game in the Knicks' loss to the Thunder on Sunday for the final base. He played two minutes in the second half, picked up his fourth foul, and then Tibbs never put him back in. Uh, He received a benefit-of-the-doubt boost when he cracked my top 25, under 25 right now list in general. He's getting another sort of of benefit-of-the-doubt not here. To be clear, like I said, he's looked better recently. Prior to that loss to the Thunder, he was averaging 20.2 points and 3.5 assists over his past uh, previous six games. I think it was even higher. Previous seven games, excuse me, while hitting over 40% of his triples. Optimization? or the lack thereof, continues to be a huge part of the R.J. Barrett story. Is it a coincidence his latest stretch aligns with getting more floor time independent of both Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson? I'll let you decide so long as your answer is no. But there has been a certain aimless tunnel vision to his offense at times. Providing rim pressure is great. Having more counters when you barrel into traffic or can't get all the way there is even better. To his credit, Barrett has nudged up his efficiency around the basket anyway. He's shooting over 60% within four feet for the first time of his career, and his 55.9% clip on drives these past seven games before the Thunder loss is a potentially massive development. In the aggregate, aggregate, though, Barrett's season has been uneven. He's still below 31% from three and too often seems to be filtering around and eminently screenable on defense. The Knicks reaching their highest percentile outcome always hinged upon him sniffing sustainable stardom. By both their hand and his own, he's just, he's not yet there. Oklahoma City Thunder with Shea Gilgis Alexander. He gets a big, fat, friggin' A plus, 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 plus in my book. One of only two that were given out. SGA's first few games have been a masterclass in all encompassing dominance, a level of play possible for only the superest of superstars. Averages of 31 plus points, five plus assists, nearly two steals, and 1.5 blocks leap off the page. His 60 plus true shooting percentage, while shouldering one of the league's heaviest offensive job descriptions, does the same. And then it smacks you in the face. Nobody is averaging more drives per game than SGA, and nearly 80% of his buckets go unassisted, the second largest share of anyone who has appeared in at least 10 games, trailing only Luka Doncic. That SGA's efficiency lands where it does amid his from scratch workload is mind-boggling he's shooting 74% at the rim and 47% from mid-range including a reality twisting 50% on twos outside 14 feet a sub 33% clip from deep won't earn him praise from the box score gazers but he's sinking 45.5% of his spot up threes in a solid yet unspectacular yet still better 33.3% of his step back triples the kicker SGA is competing on defense. His closeouts are harder, his spacing deliberate, his fight around screens endless, his length ubiquitous. The Oklahoma City City Thunder may have retreated down the standings a bit, but their minutes with SGA remain in the green. What he's doing right now is nothing short of a paradigm shift, a case of both expectations obliterated and a superstar life force unleashed. Easy A+. How have you not been impressed by Shea, who I think is probably in the top 10 of the MVP discussion right now? Not going to lie. Next up, Paolo Bancaro for the Orlando Magic. He got an A as well. Been missing some time recently, but he still gets an A. It is a testament to both Wendell Carter Jr. and Franz Wagner that this decision gave me pause. It's even bigger testament to Paolo Bancaro that he trounced those reservations. Rookies seldom look so complete. Bancaro plays with an air of total control, someone who mandates the terms of engagement, speeding up or slowing down for no one except except himself. He has equal parts force and finesse on his forays to the basket, a bulldozer with side-to-side tactility and handles and touch. Ben Carroll would ideally drill more of his jumpers, and he eventually will. For the time being, he can thrive as a 1.5 to 2-level scorer. His finishing around the rim is already decidedly above average. He's shooting 53.1% on drives, and his 1.25 points per post-up possession are 6th most in the league. How Bancaro can be so high usage and economical with his touches is beyond me. He's on track to become the youngest player in league history to post a usage rate above 30 with a turnover rate below 12.5. Only four players, meanwhile, have maintained those benchmarks for an entire season prior to their age 22 season. Carmelo Anthony, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, and Tracy McGrady. That's holy crap company. Because this isn't enough, Bancaro is resetting estimations of his defense he is more head-on-a-swivel than most rookies, and his rim protection is held up versus moderate to high volume. The limit of who he becomes once in his prime does not exist. The Philadelphia 76ers, Tyrese Maxey, the obvious choice for them, I gave him an A-, had a couple rough games recently, but breathtaking speed and scintillating long-range marksmanship remain the bedrocks upon which he's building his all-star track. His past few gains have been, like I said, not great, but he's still good for around 23 points and four assists a night while shooting over 41% from behind the rainbow and 45% on long twos. There's been some pullback on his efficiency near the basket, but he's shooting sub 60% around the rim. His 40% clip on drives also pales in comparison to last year's 50% success rate, and he's seen his accuracy at the foul line drop by more than 10 points. Absences from James Harden and Joel Embiid, some of them overlapping, have spotlighted holes Maxi must fill. Slowed-down orchestration is not natural for him, and the Philadelphia 76ers' offense has cratered in the time he and, and Bede spend without Harden. Visually, it also looks like Maxi has less zest this season on defense. More than most, this is an interpretative open to the season. Or interpretive. I don't know why I pronounce it like that. I recognize... What Maxi's done, though, as a, as a standout performance. A relative continuation of Maxi's offensive lethality in the face of volatile circumstances and lineups and rotations and shifting units and all that jazz. A minus from me. Phoenix Suns, DeAndre Ayton. Oh, boy. What do we give him? It's a D-plus, folks. It's, it's a D-plus. DeAndre Ayton, D-plus. Scoring regression from Chris Paul. Injuries and a shallower rotation at the top all seem like ingredients for DeAndre Ayton to expand his role. They have not been. This is to some extent beyond his control. The Phoenix Suns aren't attempting to use him much differently in response to availability shakeups. A smaller percentage of his offensive possessions are coming as post-ups compared to last season. And only a slightly larger share of his buckets are going unassisted. 21.1% of his buckets are going unassisted up from 18.8 last year. To say Ayton is blameless though would be a gross understatement. Foul trouble has inherently limited his minutes. His 4.8 personals per 36 minutes are a career high, and his propensity for playing without force or fading entirely into the background persists. Things he's historically done well have even started spiraling in the wrong direction. Last year, he averaged 1.25 points per possession as the role man, that was in the 72nd percentile, while turning the ball over just 7.5% of the time. This season, He's averaging 0.95 points per possession, which is in the 21st percentile, with a turnover rate of 16.2. The latter could be skewed by a climb and moving screen calls on him, but that's not exactly comforting either. Aiton is coming off a year in which he hit 60-plus percent of his hook shots. This year, he's shooting 40% on hook shots. His defensive body language is vacillated. He looks stiff and or drowsy on a ton of possessions and has churned out some real half ass contests around the rim. Opponents are shooting 64.4% against him at the basket, a decidedly lackluster Mark among everyone who challenges as many looks. And it's a nuclear increase. That's 64.5% per- over the 55.5% he allowed last season. Take this demerit as a backhanded compliment. If you find yourself enraged, Ayton hasn't been bad, but he set lofty standards for himself over the past two years. He is supposed to be a top end center ascending a legitimate star Maybe one of these games, he'll start playing like it. I feel like we should just move on. I don't even want to marinate on the DeAndre and stuff. It's just making me sad. Portland Trailblazers Anthony Simons gets A, B plus. He has not seriously expanded his game from last year, which is actually in itself a feat. He is playing more than ever and defending harder than ever, yet has not seen his efficiency implode. It has mostly weathered the storm of greater volume. High variability is still caked into his performances that comes with the territory of a 23 year old bestowed an unconditional green light off the dribble in the absence of Gaga efficiency on self-created jumpers or general pick and roll mastery. He has parlayed extra half court space into more rim pressure and cleaner finishing to go with it. The touch on both his floater, which he's hitting at a 53.3% clip and spot up three still over 41% remains. Simons continues to make incremental playmaking strides as well. His potential assists are down from last season, but the Blazers are better at the top and have placed him into a more even keeled role. He can be trusted to get the ball to teammates in open space sooner and with more gusto. Broadening his offensive margins and again, leveling up on defense has helped Portland navigate protracted stretches and entire games without Damian Lillard. This year, lineups without Simons as lineups with Simons as the lead guard, so no Dame are a plus 12.3 points per 100 possessions, a body of success for which Simons isn't solely responsible, but his play makes possible. I think when you look at the numbers, it'd be easy to give him like a C or a C plus, but I think he's been a lot better than people realize. We are on to the Sacramento Kings. De'Aaron Fox gets our second and final A plus. Who's excited? I'm excited. Fits and starts have punctuated much of De'Aaron Fox's career that might all be over now. He has opened the season unlike anything we've seen before with numbers that bend the brain. Fox is averaging about 25 points and five assists while knocking down over 60% of his twos and 36% of his threes. He isn't getting to the rim or free throw line as much on a per minute basis, but his efficiency from both areas is so damn high, the minor drop-off becomes inconsequential. He's swishing 87% of his free throws and finishing at an unfathomable 85% clip around the basket. Certain possessions still include too much congested dribbling. Until they don't. One second, you're wondering whether Fox is unnecessarily forcing it, probing to nowhere. The next, he's unbottling a floater. 56.5% on floaters or turnaround fadeaway. 56.3%. His 55% clip on spot-up threes is a team offense friendly, and he's hitting just enough of his step backs, again, to defang opponents. True to expectations, the Sacramento Kings are not winning any defensive awards. but Fox no longer feels undeniably complicit in their struggles. He's tracking his man more, even when he drifts too far from him, and his stances aren't as scarecrow upright. Lots of basketball is left to play, but if Fox keeps this up, he's not just earning his first All-Star nod. He's party-crashing the All-NBA discussion. San Antonio Spurs are up next. They have Keldon Johnson. Look, uh, I gave him an A-minus, by the way. Kelvin Johnson gets an A-minus from me. Shout-out to Devin Vassell. We, we all know I love Devin Vassell. He made me think about this for a minute. Louder shout-out to Kelvin Johnson, though, who is stoking all-star flames. Through 11 games, Johnson is averaging 23.1 points and 3.7 assists, while downing 50% of his twos and 41.2% of his threes. The numbers are eye-popping. The manner in which they're coming, even more so. Johnson's efficiency from deep comes on nearly nine attempts per game, and he's sprinkling in a blisteringly hot, of his spot of triples, which account for more than 40% of his shots. His jaunts to the basket can be misadventures, but he goes full bore in transition always and has added more directionality and changes and cadences to his half-court attacks. This version of the San Antonio Spurs roster has necessitated more creation from Johnson, and he seems up for the part. Jacking up responsibilities has messed with aspects of his efficiency inside the arc, but he looks more and more comfortable surveying the floor on the move, throwing pocket passes, and just generally getting rid of the ball in traffic. Sticklers could nitpick and yank Johnson down a half letter grade. I won't do it. The A minus is sticking. This kid dislocated his shoulder not two months ago and is already playing by far the best basketball of his career. That was an easy grade for me. But again, shout out to them. who's was just been absolutely amazing. The Toronto Raptors, Scotty Barnes is their best under 25 player. He gets, he gets a B, and I thought about going lower. Everything seems to be happening faster for Scotty Barnes on the offensive side of the floor. The handle, the live dribble kickouts, the spins, the range of motion on his hook shots and jumpers. He's operating at a higher processing speed and more unpredictable in mostly good ways because of it. Barnes is averaging over 14 points, about five assists, while shooting 75% around the hoop. His pull-up jumper isn't falling, but his 42.8% clip on spot-up threes is a critical development he's now equipped to make defender second guess positioning on his catches. That in turn has opened not only more scoring opportunities, but also more passing avenues. Granted, it isn't all sunshine and dandelions for the 21 year old Barnes will puke up garbage jumpers. If he can't immediately beat his man or get all the way to the basket. And he's flirting with entry into the hall of looks like he should be a good defender, but really isn't mild concern is allowable. Barnes is still really young that he's refined a good portion of his offensive decision-making at all is a victory and the trajectory for him hasn't changed. If anything, the scope of his offensive toolbox keeps him ahead of schedule, in my book, at least. We are getting to the end here. Utah Jazz, Colin Sexton. I'm going to get out in front of this, too. If you want to know where Larry Market is, he's with the actual 25-year-olds, so he did not qualify for this list. We all feel better if anyone was outraged? Okay, cool. This Justin Colin Sexton's really good. Expectations for the 23-year-old were admittedly tapered, entering the season after he missed most of last year with a left knee injury. The Utah Jazz's ultra-stacked guard rotation has also left him to play fewer minutes overall, though they did get beefed up uh, to open November. It turns out Sexton hasn't needed much of a grace period. His 58.8% clip on pull-up threes is impressive. Even more impressive, how selective he's become. Pull-up jumpers accounted for for, for 38.5% of his total shots back in his last full season with Cleveland. They represent just 24.6% of his attempts this year. Playing inside so many five-out lineups has definitely empowered Sexton to follow through on his drives. More of his shots are coming at the rim than ever, and he's posting what would be the highest free-throw attempt rate of his career. Utah has slotted him into a more modest role, for now, but chances are he won't stay there. He has more to offer as a downhill playmaker, and his speed shows no ill effects from last year's knee injury. Low-level touch on catch-and-shoot threes, sub-22%, is worth monitoring, and Sexton could stand to weed out more of his baby mid-rangers. The qualms with his return to the floor they end there. Our final team and player, the Washington Wizards with Rui Hachimura. This was tough. Game of C+, that wasn't tough. Um, but I-, I wanted to pick Denny Avia. His playing time has been so inconsistent. This is He had a huge game on Sunday, so that would have been good fodder for this. He's been afraid to shoot threes. I still don't think they're using him properly on offense. They do throw him on a bunch of tough defensive assignments. I went with Rui Hachimura. Daniel Gafford also received consideration here. That just feels so beginning of last season, though. He's not seeing the floor nearly enough now. And so we have Rui Hachimura. He doesn't have a playing time problem. The Wizards have used him as the focal point off the bench to some level of efficacy. Hachimura's averaging 12 points while converting a career-high 53.1% of his twos, including a tidy 47.2% of his pull-up jumpers inside the arc. Defenses seem to respect his penchant for getting to his spots and what looks like, to me, a faster release. He's not a bankable threat from downtown. He's still under... 31% 31% on spot-up threes, yet players crowd him in an attempt to take away his lanes. His postwork is ready-made for attacking mismatches, and he's getting better at moving away from the ball but toward the basket. Washington's past few games suggest that Hachimura might be equipped for an even larger role, but his skill set it hasn't dramatically expanded, and what he offers now is so specific and situationally valuable, it's hard to project forward. Is there more playmaking, better shooting, more consistent defense, and or the potential for screening and rolling here? Is this mostly it? Hachimura has, frankly, answered neither question. That's probably a good thing, since it leaves the door o- to open the door of possibility rather than closing it altogether. Let me know what you think of these grades. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Follow us on the socials, links that are in the podcast and YouTube description. Until next time, join our Discord, but also shout out to the one the only, the real king of under twenty-five players, Frank Mila Kina.